Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. A lot of it also comes back to, you know, to use the title from the Chris Arnade book, Dignity. You know, just yes, people, feel yeah. like, people feel like they were humiliated. And humiliated people get angry, you know, with, with, and have every right to. We've got a great guest for everybody today. It is Mark Izagire. He is a Houston-based lawyer. But for our purposes, Mark is just a really smart guy who likes to observe politics. He's been blogging and writing about it since the early 2010s. He came to my attention on Twitter, of all places. It's not just a cancerous place. Um, With some really insightful takes around where he thinks the future of the conservative movement will be. Uh, I should note, Mark is a moderate Democrat, but he's a very astute observer given his Texas Houston perch, seems to really have his eye on what the future coalitions will look like, gives us a real good diagnosis of where the Democrats went wrong, why things fell apart for them during the Obama era, and where things are headed. I love talking to Mark, Marshall. I don't know, but he's one of my favorite episodes in a long time. Yeah, Mark was great. You know, we're always interested in seeing what we were right about, what we were wrong about on the show. And with Mark, this was interesting because he's a perfect person to discuss how can realignment go one way, how could it go a different way. He's discussing the Democratic Party, Obama, Republicans, what this means for the future, and discussing everyone's favorite topic, Hispanic voters in Texas. So Mm -hmm. that's really a really useful way to go on. Um, He's Basque, so he actually puts the white and white Hispanic as we're getting into a bit during the episode here. Now, quick other note. We are sending out the Substack today. It is going to feature our book recommendations of the year. We know that that was actually a huge thing for people, so you could see Sagar and my recommendations. There is a link to the bookshop in this uh, show notes of this episode, and then we'll also send out the newsletter. Anything else you want to add, Sagar? Yeah, I'm going to be moved. Just you know, full transparency, I'm moving um, in the next couple of weeks. It's a total nightmare. I don't recommend it. Um, for anybody else who is out there, but I'm going to be in and out here. I'll be back at the end of the year, but it's just a, it's a scheduling nightmare for me. So Marshall's holding down the fort. So thank you, Marshall. Appreciate it. Yeah, we, we definitely get and feel for the emails and people say, Hey, like it's, we, we want the two of you guys there. And it's like, well, we want to also make sure the algorithm doesn't screw us. So we have to keep posting. And when we're getting people sending input, we will record those episodes no matter what. Huge. Thank you to Lincoln network. Lots of great stuff here. Let's get into the episode. Mark Zagetta, welcome to The Realignment. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Good to see you, Mark. Good to see you. We were talking before the episode started about 2016 and how that shaped our politics and our views and some of the issues we're going to get into today, barstool conservatives, national conservatism, how the Democratic Party is working with these things. But you said something really interesting that gets to actually my personal background. You said around 10 years or so ago, you were writing for From Forum, which is a little remembered blog that David Frum of The Atlantic actually put together that was focused on the Republican Party's response to the Obama moment. Other fun fact, J.D. Vance also got his start writing there. So I'm just curious. We're going to start in 2016. Let's start in 2010. In 2010, 2011, you've got the Tea Party. You have the Obama presidency. We'll get into the realignment now, but this is really the last big narrative period. What were you writing and thinking about, and what got you interested in David Frum's project? 
Um, well, back then, I met David from just an event in Washington, you know, around around that time. And yeah, you know, just a general interest in in politics and public policy. In terms of my politics, you know, political background at the time, you know, it's uh, you know Democrat, you know, but I'd say moderate, moderate center Democrat. Earlier in life, I was a Republican, and you know, don't have to get into details too much of sort of personal biography. But so, but so I had a more than passing knowledge of you know conservatism, libertarianism, and different political ideologies. Where it wasn't, where I wasn't. I would hope not coming in from just sort of like a purely partisan viewpoint. So I just met him and um, he's a very, you know, one thing I'll say about David, he's an extremely friendly guy. I mean, I know, it's, you know a lot of people like to kind of criticize him both on the right and the left, but he's a, someone who's been very open as far as when to meet people, um, talk to people, especially at that point when he was doing from form, I think part of the idea was to also get people to, who might have interesting ideas to talk about things. And we were just starting a conversation. I start, and we started talking about just things like the, the, voting things in, in Texas, a lot of stuff that I vote, wrote for, for from form related to things going on in Texas at the time, um, whether it was sort of voting trends. Um, also, um, when Rick Perry was running for president, um, that was um, a, a source for multiple articles that, that I wrote for, um, for from form. So, you know, so while his general larger the, you know, kind of purpose for the the blog was that sort of you know, conservatism and you know and, and sort of in that in the Obama moment and sort of trying to building a I guess a new or different type of conservatism. I was certainly interested in that, but I wasn't necessarily you know, in there for that. And 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 he had a very broad group of people writing for him. Um, I mean, it was uh, you had people who were definitely on the deeply conservative Republican political activist side to people who were definitely. Li- liberals and you know and you know various stripes writing there who just and a lot of times it wasn't necessarily political pieces at all um it was also cultural pieces i mean i wrote mm-hmm. a couple of book reviews um you know just sort of and then you know the pop culture kind of discussions um so it was a, a pretty broad thing and I, but i do think that one thing that was there and i was very pleased to, to write there was where i started kind of doing political writing was that there was an idea of breadth that you know that you weren't going to be um tied to any particular kind of you the, 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 there was no no party line that you had to yeah. take in order to to write there and that i think was very important there and it's something that it's difficult because i think there is a natural push in any online or any political journal to have at the very least be considered that, well this is definitely of the left or of the right, or of the, you know, the 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 center, however defined, whatever you want to do it. Um, but it, but I think there there was an idea that that there was also a, maybe a bit of a feeling that a lot of things were up for grabs. So let's kind of let's have a whole lot of different voices come in, and um, and again, you know, in, in that particular one, while you wrote a political stuff, a lot of what I wrote also back then was also while it was maybe less ideological as it was analytic to just sort of here's what here's some things here's some observations here's some things going on let me explain it to people because they probably only know david from from such great works as uh trumpocracy or apocalypse but Mm. uh once upon a time david from was one of the most forward-thinking people in the american right he wrote a book comeback conservatism i think in 2007 um, in which he said that the GOP should be not as interested in foreign adventurism, skeptical of the neoliberal consensus on trade, and skeptical of the neoliberal consensus on immigration. He essentially called Trumpism, um, if there was such a thing, 
what, uh, you know, almost six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Or, actually, no, eight years, eight, nine years before Trump even emerged on the political stage. So, look, you know, for whatever he did in the Trump era, I do think it's very important that we understand that contribution to the discourse. Mark, give us a taste then of kind of your ideological analytical framework that has led to you to a point of very shared agreement, but I don't want to give the listeners a taste of that yet. So tell us a lot about how you have been analyzing politics yourself, um, some of the things that you were looking at back in the 2010s and more that kind of gave you the uh, the chops to bring you to the same conclusion that the three of us generally share about the outlook of where political movements are going. Well, one thing I've always tried to do is to look not only, first of all, it's just to try to be in, obviously everyone comes in with their priors. So I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and claim that I'm unbiased. That's, that's a falsity. No one is. But, um, but, but I would try to, first of all, look in terms of my, am I being, you know, am I analyzing it in the way that like, if I was trying to give, say, a, 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 a status situation discussion to a client or something like that, you yeah. know, to where basically just, this is just the way the world is. You know, see the world the way as it is, not the way you want it to be. Yeah. That's one thing I, I try to go in with any, with anything of that sort. I also have always had an interest in looking at things beyond the mainstream. And I'm not saying like some sort of glorification of radicalism or anything of that sort. It's not that it's more the, the idea that, you know, ideas come from small groups initially that become big groups, and you know, and it's just, and yeah, you know, and many of them never become big. You know, many small marginal groups remain small and marginal for their entire existences. Um, others grow and are able to cap- to capture the mainstream, and so I do think that's part of it too, is to look around and to read around, and 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 yeah, there might be a group of people who at one point seem very fringe, but if there is something serious there, if you see them particularly building up ahead of steam. If you see them building um, kind of political social networks, to be able to the, the, to to take them seriously, and I guess one thing I always, I guess I, I always, but that I think about whenever I'm doing things is, you know, people have a pl- place at the table, both for, for a lot of reasons. Some it's because hey, there seem to be this brilliant ideas and to be brought in, but some it's just simple numbers. I mean, if you have millions of people supporting a particular perspective, you just can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think that is a real problem that I think has frankly faced liberals in the past, I think, decade or, or more, if not longer, is this sort of idea that if you just sort of in your mind have read people out of the movement or read people out of you know, um, polite society, that you think they're going to go away. And that's just not the way it is. Yeah, I mean, and I think so. That's one thing that I in sort of try to have an analytic framework. So when I see things that have come and gone and sort of movements that are of interest and you know, some are more interesting than others, you know, and then you, you know, and they can bubble up in all sorts of different ways. I mean, we had you know, Occupy Wall Street a decade ago, you know, and then, you know, that kind of led to the seeds of this sort of resurgence, I think desurgence recently of the sort of DSA, democratic socialist type thing on the left. Mm-hmm. Um, you see stuff going on, you know, on the right right now, you know, back you know, again, a decade ago, you had the Tea Party movement. And, um, and regardless of what, you know, what people think about, how it was formed, to what extent was it was it truly grassroots versus certain certain you know top down? You know, I think those things also feed on each other too. You can have a grassroots movement that if people are watching it, they're going to jump on it and move on it really quickly, and they can either um, build it up 
or smother it. I mean, is it an, a, a, this may be a strange analogy, but sort of like when you think of, you know, in the past, there used to be like have local music scenes that would be able to maybe kind of foster themselves and build up over time before, before breaking. And now you have people in the music industry saying, well, you know, it's kind of, you don't really have that much anymore. It's like these things kind of pop, come up and either get taken up quick or they kind of fade. And I think that's sort of a, something that may be happening a little bit with, with politics now is you have these th things that kind of catch on fire in social media and elsewhere. And maybe they take or maybe they don't. And, you know, and, and you know, we can debate how grassroots they are not at a certain level. I'm not sure it really matters. It's more of a question of do they, are they able to get that legitimacy and that, um, that degree for people to pay attention to them and take them seriously. I just, uh, I want to not push back, but add a little nuance to something you said. I think it's a very interesting debate that matters for people, which is when you said, if you read people out, they, they don't just go away. And I think if you actually look at the track record of the last five or six years, it's actually kind of a mixed bag. So for example, what's his name? Uh, the British Nazi blonde oh, yeah. hair. Yeah, Milo. Milo. Oh, Ooh. yeah, Milo. Yeah. Milo, people, Milo was banned and everyone forgot. So I think the only nuance, the nuance here that I'm making very clear here is, and when it comes to reading people out, is there are two different levels of characters in this political space we're talking about. There are people who are aggressive and are somewhat clownish, but ultimately they're selling a commodity product, aka outrage, aka some type of like tribalism. And what you saw happen when a bunch of these folks got banned is they were banned and ultimately no one cared because they just moved on to the next thing. There are genuinely types of people and there are parts of movements that don't actually truly have authentic, deeply held fan bases who would fight back if anything happened. I think that supremely contrasts with Donald Trump, as in Donald Trump is not a commodity product. Literally no one else can do what he does. And if anyone, as people have tried to do, would attempt to write him out of the political story of the Republican Party, we see that wouldn't just happen. So I do just think that has to be a quick, quick, quick addendum given because people said Milo, and I'm not saying this means you should ban people, but it is just this interesting test case of you might you ban you banned Milo and no one ultimately cared. I'm curious how you think about that. Oh, oh no, I, I would agree with that. I was, when I was thinking about the place to table, I was thinking more of the issue of sort of yeah, when you have actual movements of big groups of people who become organized. And I mean, beyond like a, the, the fan base of sort of like a, of, of a type of online celebrity or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of, yeah, if you have the, the, like, you know, say like the DSA, I mean, that's a, that's an organization that has people who get together and some places have more influence than others, um, you know, on the left um, in places like where you have, you know, where you have, um, uh, say religious groups that basically, you know, kind of, you know, you're seeing kind of the rise, say right now, how much is online, how much it is, you know, in real life of say, you know, kind of you know, integralism, you know, if nothing else got mentioned on succession. So I guess that, that counts for something, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, and can um, you explain, oh, can you, yeah, we, we, we've let's, never, let's explain it. we've, we've made it two and a half years without ever mentioning the word integralism I'm on sorry, this podcast. So can you, so yeah, you've broken the seal on that one. Could you please explain what integralism is? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry, not a, a, an adherent of it, or I'm, in fact, I'm very much of a critic of it. It's just basically the sense. Nobody here wants integralism, but yeah. right, just, right, just right, right. <laughs> and, and I'm sure, and I don't think sure I'd necessarily be qualified to talk about it in any kind of real level expertise, other than from what I've seen of it online. Um, it's a political movement that's that's taken some shape um, it, on the on the Catholic right right now, that basically seeks to they talk about the using the, how the state needs to be subordinated. 
temporal, basically the temporal state subordinate to spiritual ends, you know, and that can be as something as anodyne and kind of as sort of, a, you know, good old fashioned, hey, the faith in the public square, um, the idea that basically there's nothing illegitimate about people saying that their political views are motivated by their, by their religious perspectives. But generally, it's more than that. Usually, it's more this idea of, you know, it's more kind of hard or core. No, you want either at the, mo- at the most extreme, some sort of confessional state, which basically undermines any concept of basic First Amendment <laughs> American ideology to, um, to, you know, to this whole kind of concept of people really having this more deferential attitude towards the Roman Catholic hierarchy. And what's, what's interesting about that is I don't think, I think 99% of American Catholics have never even heard of it. And of those that have, <laughs> the Ormering don't like it. But it seems to be taking off a bit on social media, and you know, and you see, and when you think of how elites can work, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it seems like there's some people who work on Capitol Hill who probably you know are familiar with it and are yeah, influenced are. by yes. it. That's right. And 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 to me, that's what makes it of importance. It's like it's, I you know, I again, I go back to you know many of these movements that seem to be on the fringe remain so, but I also do think that if you look at history, committed minorities do you know change the world most don't but the ones but but statistically statistically most don't you know 99 don't but then one percent do and that becomes like the bolshevik empire and that becomes yeah yeah. exactly and that gives the hope or even something kind of you know there's the the most extreme versions of that or even things like you know say like you know how you know supply side economics you know kind of moved up for you know for you know to from being something that would have been anathema to you know an eisenhower republican to being, you know, to being what was the centerpiece of, you know, of Reaganite, you know, conservatism. So I mean, it can, it can be something on the, on the, you know, on that far. So that, that's why I'd say that, you know, when people kind of get enough of a, of a group together, enough of a size, that makes it hard for the, hard for them to be ignored. And I do, and my critique of sort of, of liberalism is I think that sometimes there's an assumption because you just, I see it too often where people say, well, I, I didn't see that coming. It's like, well, why didn't you see it coming? It's like, I mean, yeah, well, then you should be paying attention. Exactly. Mark, what let's, haven't, what have, quick, 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 one quick, what haven't, what have liberals not seen coming in those conversations? Well, I mean, for example, just, just for, you know, say what's happened, you know, in, in Texas with respect to the, um, you know, the, the anti-abortion legislation that's come in, sort of almost this almost incredulous idea. Like, I can't believe people actually believe that. And I never thought they would act on it. And it's just like, Really? I mean, it's like, I mean, you know, you have legislators who've been talking about wanting to do these, you know, changes of laws um, that, that are of this type. Um, certainly, you know, the shock over Trump, Trump's you know, Trump's presidency, frankly, being one of those ones where like you had so many people who would just say, this can't happen. This can never happen. And it's like, yeah, it can. And I mean, and it's not just because of the fact that anyone who gets the nomination of a major pre- of, of one of the two major political parties has a, you know, pretty good chance of becoming the president of the United States, but also just kind of saying, you know, did you not notice, you know, it's almost like you, you didn't want to see it or because that's not what's discussed in your circles and you don't want to read outside and hear outside that like, yeah, I mean, if it, it, it shouldn't have surprised you that there's a lot of people who outright supported supported the Trump and were very excited about what he was doing. And it, and I think that's something that that you know maybe that maybe I'm wrong on that, but I just I just do think that I feel like liberals get a little bit more of that blindsiding, you know, or or you know, or and maybe the, the more savvy ones don't. But I don't know. I've just see, it just seems like I see it on social media and elsewhere. This sort of like wow, I didn't see that coming, sort of thing. 
You're obviously right. One of the reasons I wanted to book you is not just um, over Twitter, ironically, um, how we connected, but is because you sent me the piece that you wrote about Latinos in the South Texas, Rio Grande Valley, voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mark, I don't know if you know this. I'm from Texas. I grew up in College Station. I didn't know and that. And the, uh, the kind of- I was born of, in Houston. Don't erase yeah, me. all right. Yeah, he's- All right. You know, all right. Excellent. For a three, couple of days. Three Texans. Uh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the Tejano- uh, the Tejano identity was not foreign to me. You know, even though the term white Hispanic is like one of the dumbest terms that exists, yeah. it's like, I get it. You know, it makes sense. I grew up around a lot of people um, who were like that. And it was incredibly shocking to the Beltway press in particular to see that. You and I seemingly have even come across the same phrase, which I think encapsulates all of this, called ranchero libertarianism, yeah. which was coined by a California-based... Uh, I'm forgetting, is it Gustavo Ariano? Gustavo Ariano, right. Yeah, incredible commentator. He's a very liberal guy. I've had him on Breaking Points right. before to talk about the uh, recall elections. But can you just go through that? And that's what I was going to ask you. A taxonomy of like, people missed um, the idea that a lot of people who are literally right across the border from Mexico mm-hmm. could end up voting for Donald Trump. And you grew up in Brownsville, Texas right. yourself. Just give us, uh, you know, kind of the roots of that, why it was missed, and how it's going to look in the future. I mean, with respect to to the kind of the border area. I mean, first of all, just a little little bit of dichotomy. I grew up in Brownsville, which, while it's not a big city, is kind of with the bigger cities down there. Yeah. So that has a little bit of a different feel to it than than Star Zapata County, which are the ones that, that went swung heavily for Trump, which are definitely much more rural. Um, and it's just something to kind of you know mention you know that as far as being you know a, a nuance even within even within that that subset. Um, but I think you have a couple of things that go into it. One is that. First of all, you have the fact that the, in the more rural areas, I mean, rural people have more similar economic interests, and they're going to see, for example, a lot of them work in the oil and gas industry. Yep. There's a lot of drilling down there, and also a lot of them, you know, they take that drive up to um, the Permian Basin, which is not right nearby, but it is something that's that's an issue of jobs. So, in uh, so in this very in, so in this most recent election, to the extent oil and gas was an issue, yeah, that was something that that would affect it. Um, on a larger scale, I mean, and this may and it's, this may sound you're being like you're being simplistic, but you know, it basically it's like well, guys who like big pickup trucks and who can see themselves be kind of more rural, kind of, you know, salt of the earth type people you know, of all ethnicities tend to be more conservative. And, and the thing is, that has always been the case there. Yes. The, de- the Democrats of South Texas have historically been more conservative on many issues than in other places. Now, they might have been more like, you know, maybe a throwback to yeah, it's it, to, to use something from another part of the country, the kind of the New Deal Democrats of the Northeast in the 1930s or 1940s, who were maybe um, majority Catholic, um, more in, OK with social welfare spending and that sort of thing, because it seems like you, know, you help the poor and you help the people who are down in their life, but otherwise fairly socially conservative. So I, so you have that as far as like, I think, how, how they link up with, say, similar people, similar um, situated people elsewhere. Another thing is in a place like South Texas, the Latinos are the cops and the um, small business owners. Yep. And who are two big constituents for conservative politics? Policemen. And small business owners. So, so I mean, so in, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like it's what, what makes them unique is what makes them more like everybody else. It's just like they're, they're simply acting in a way that if you saw this in a community with English surnames, 
you would be a lot less surprised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and, th- and that, that to me is a lot of it right there. Now, I, I do think it's an overstatement to say that there's going to be this massive Latino wave towards the Republicans. I mean, I mean I've seen some people say that and pick it up and go, and I was like, well, no, I mean, I think the election results were definitely favorable to the Republicans and they're looking, you know, and right now we'll, we'll see how things play out in, in the, in the midterms, but you know, they they're, they're looking strong right now in South Texas for, you know, for various elections going on down there. But with that, I, I, you know, if, if the Republicans are able to pick up, you know, 40, 45% of Latino vote, nationally that would be devastating to the democrats yeah, that's huge right yeah, exactly be, you don't that, have to win a majority that's it's right like- the, the, that, that's the, exactly that's thing people don't get you don't have to win a majority you just have and texas and during the george uh, w bush years was the perfect and to some degree the perry and, and abbott years now um you know george w bush got like 40 45 percent of Latino vote. And so I mean, does he landsliding victories yeah. so i mean if you have a strong vote in the you know among you know, among um, 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 in Texas, the term is Anglo, and some people might hear that their their backs are like, no, that's just a, it's not non pejorative term. It's a term for basically non Hispanic whites, <laughs> the people who tend to be used in Texas. Um, you know, if you have that the Anglo vote basically being you know being majority Republican, and Latino vote being plurality Republican, and then with de- you know decent you know entree in in the um, in the African American Asian communities, you have a working majority, and um, and certainly in Texas. Um, if it, you know, if you're looking at 45 percent, I mean, that's the, it. Just alters the assumptions of what people are, were, were, and I think that's the thing. The assumptions were, and yeah, and you know, 15 years ago, you know, I read you know the you know the emerging democratic majority book, which it's its writers have now rejected the thesis. I mean, Rui Tejeda was Tejeda was one of the writers of it. He now is one of the ones who's like who's like one of the biggest warning signs right now, talking about particularly the, the, the Latino vote. And, um, yeah. Quick and thing, again, quick thing, Mark, not to interrupt apologies, but you're, you're being very learned and we need to reference these things. This is a very important, like it, it came out in 2002, John B. Nice. Judas, um, Roy Tierra, like what was the emerging democratic majority? So like, what, what was this idea? Cause this is actually a very important idea that basically yes. defined the next three elections yeah. in terms of how the democratic yes. party structured and planned itself. It, it was based on the assumption that there was going to be a new coalition and people use the term coalition of the ascendant was something that people would use for it. Um, and it would be a mixture of um, white professional, white professionals, um, um, minorities who are um, of, all, of all ethnicities who are going to be not only he- voting heavily democratic, but in greater numbers. Um, also with an assumption they're going to hold a bigger portion of the of the working class, white working class, Anglo working class, and they, then they end up doing. It. I think the yeah that was when people talked about the the Midwest kind of as, as a wall for the Democrats. So the idea is you're going to hold these very disparate groups together. But one of the really biggest uh, and you know and the, and the, how do you hold them together? I mean, there you go into the ideology issues like hey, cut progressive politics or policies that are seen as being beneficial to all, and you know, and basically everyone gets a piece of you know some some beneficial subset of policies. You know, kind of um, you know. LGBT people have more progressive policies on on LGBT issues. Um, unions have more, you know, more, a more pro-union approach would, would be helpful towards uh, the working class voters um, and just a general sort of move towards what you might call collegiate social values, you know, for, for kind of professionals. Um, the problem is it just it's all based on the assumption of how people are going to vote. And if if a big portion of the minority vote 
doesn't go the way that the that the numbers are supposed to run out, and especially if it's not only that, if it's coupled with a decline in a, in a big portion, namely um, the white working class vote, then that that thesis is blown away, and 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 it's something that that I think people made so many assumptions on on both sides that the, the concert Republicans I think assumed that that was going to be what was going to happen, right? So they started double downing on some other stuff too, and. And and that's why I think it's like it's it's almost like flipping the table over in you know, <laughs> a chess game or something. It's like, you know, it's like if if all these assumptions go, I mean, the, the, if those assumptions can actually go in the other direction too, or maybe like, hey, if, if Republicans can also get more minority voters, then they also their alter their policies too in terms of what, and, or at least their assumptions and what is going to be good for voter outreach, um, what's going to be good for bringing people to to the you know to the table and it, and it creates a push and pull in both directions. And here's what's really fascinating though because I have to offer a quick defense of John Dudas and Roy Tejera because 2008 seemingly vindicated everything they said. Think oh, about yeah. it. They write the book in 2002. George W. Bush wins in 2004, but you can attribute a lot of that to 9/11 and the Iraq war. 2006, Democrats come in, they sweep this really broad segment of the country. George W. Bush is completely repudiated in 2008. Obama, this literally ascendant like black man from Hawaii who mm-hmm. is Ivy League educated but comes from Chicago. He is the representative of the Democratic Party. So all of its, this, this narrative fits and makes a lot of sense. And I think the good way of explaining a lot of, honestly, the craziness on the Democratic Party establishment sides over the past 11 years, but then also the center-right Republican establishment is like you said – those predictions effectively outside of Obama's reelection in 2012, just falling away, AKA Hillary Clinton, not the most ascendant coalition. B, if you're a Republican, because this is the key thing that's being, that needs to be introduced in the story. You hear this coalition of the ascendant idea. You think, oh man, the first thing we have to do is pass immigration reform. Not right. because, not because we believe, and this is the key thing. And it's actually really – if you want to be really cynical, you should look back at Sean Hannity and co. arguing for legalizing undocumented immigrants back in 2013. It wasn't principled. It wasn't there's this idea. It was literally like we need to win Hispanic people. We're going to pass um, immigration reform. That didn't happen, and then we still have the scenario where we're really happening here. So I think that was a really interesting example to your point of sometimes there can be these small ideas that mm-hmm. capture and define things. But Sagar, you've got follow-up. Yeah, I, I- – I'm, what I'm struck by this is, you know, from that history is it could have been true. Uh, you know, 2008, there was a, a certainly a chance, I think, for Barack Obama and a lot of the liberal establishment actually to make the emerging Democratic majority a real thing. Mm-hmm. Mark, I'm curious what went wrong. To me, it came from a cultural triumphalism in yeah. which they began to say these people will vote for us no matter what which means that we can, language starts changing. 2014, Obama's got his pen in his phone, the immigration thing. I mean, not fully addressing the roots of the financial crisis and then really beginning to lean into social justice post-Ferguson and then the full embrace of that by at least 
the activist class, which bubbles up to the Hillary Clinton ads. I mean, people forget this. Barack Obama was against gay marriage in 2008. Um, Barack Obama was the same guy who said he was resentful whenever the guy who fixed his car didn't know how to speak English mm-hmm. and people were waving Mexican flags. That's how he won Ohio, okay? Like, you can like it or not, but that's the truth. So by abandoning that, or at the very least saying, we're not even going to try and pretend anymore, it appears that that is what ultimately what sealed their fate and has led to this uh, situation. I'm curious for your tax, for your uh, retrograde kind of view of what went wrong in the Obama years. I, first of all, I would agree in terms of the, the, the different aspects you, you mentioned, but actually I want to focus on one that you said, which is the response or lack of it to the, to the financial crisis. Yeah, um, I, I don't think that can be o- overstated. Um, the fact that no one went to jail or no one important. And I mean, now the counter can be, well, you can't put people in jail. They didn't break the law. But well, maybe that's part of the issue is, okay, well, there, you know, the, yeah, there was legislation that came out as, a, you know, but I think there was a feeling for a lot of people that this was such a lot, that this was a lost decade and that their economic, that they saw their parents, you know, if they're young people, they saw their parents go through some hellish things. Um, I'll say here, living in Texas, we were so insulated from so much, so much of that. Yeah. For, and we can go into a lot of the, that. That's a whole other conversation. The Texas miracle of, the, of that era, um, how much it was oil and gas versus other things. But it, all I can say is Houston did not suffer much during the during that compared to other places that, that had the bottom fallout from them and took a long time to recover in some place, some reasons did, in some ways never did. Um, so you, you have that where I think that, you know, that 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 the the fact that the, the things weren't done to a lot of people's satisfaction on that front, coupled with is triumphalism. And and again, it's, it's it's one of those things where you know, and, and I'm 100 in on the on the things are good. You know, the when you know gay marriage was was you know in Supreme Court. I mean, I was just, uh, I mean, I was surprised that they did it because I I was a little more pessimistic. You know, um, I do think that you know having kind of a, the support of liberta- more libertarian minded conservatives helped a lot. Like Ted Olson, frankly, you know, being at the Supreme Court mm, you know, to right. argue that, um, and. It was something that I was supportive of, but I also, I guess, in my own personal views, I've always kind of thought that there's you have to know when to stop, and you have to know when to make people feel like, okay, I, you know, our side is won, but we're not going to spike the football. I mean, there there was something to be said to you know back in the back in the late eighties, early nineties, with you know George H. W. Bush not you know not making a public spectacle over the defeat of the Russians and make it feel like yeah you lost the Cold War ha ha you know this is you know we won the war you didn't it's like no let, let's not do that because it will antagonize people, and, and in a way that, that that's counterproductive and I think that there was a, there was enough of that perceived in there that basically that, that you're spiking the football. You're not knowing when to stop. You're not knowing when to let socially conservative people who again, have a place going back to my place, the table theory, they are there. There are millions of them and they are part of the, um, you know, the, the political conversation. And so you have that. I mean, and, and the thing is it's, it's, they're not completely overlapping. I mean, because I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the dissatisfaction is from people who have no, very very socially liberal views, and there's many people very socially conservative views who did you know, did all right, you know, who weren't economically damaged. But put those two things together, and I think you have sort of you know the the breakup of the Obama consensus that came in, and and you know, and and there's a lot of other things that, that that can feed into it. I mean, how much of this was? I mean, I you know, I'll say, I mean, I went to the the, the inauguration, 
And there was this electricity, this feeling of, you know, this, that this, that man, the country's just turned a corner here. Um, but there was, I mean, but people were not naive either. I mean, this is a little anecdote. I remember just um, walking away. I, mean, I was, I, I was in the crowd on the mall. I didn't have, you know, the, the one where just people show up, not the one where you have like mm-hmm. some special tickets or anything. You know, and I heard this, you know, people, people behind me kind of talking just kind of, and, the, and he said, I made this a line. It struck me. They said, well, we still, you know, we still, have, there's still a lot of work to do. We're, you know, it, it, he can't do it by himself. And, um, and that was someone in the crowd. And maybe, unfortunately, a lot of people didn't realize that and kind of thought, no, he can do it all by himself or he should, but he shouldn't. And, um, or that, the, you know, the task certainly became a, a much bigger than people expected. But I think that, you know, that, that, that when you have those things happen, you have that disappointment from a lot of people, left and right, coupled with what you're talking about also about this, this um, feeling that for one subset of them, that, that, the, that they're not, that the things are moving so fast and they're, and they're being, and things are being turned on them. And, and it, it ties into all the stuff we talked to now about cancel culture and stuff like that. I mean, a lot, a lot of this can be very old battles that are just being, you know, redone. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, like the online phrase goes, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember back in the early nineties, the whole debate over political correctness and things like that. And, you know, and a lot of this is very similar. Um, I wouldn't say it's the same because context changed. I mean, I think now that I think there's when there is that feeling that the people in charge, it's not, it's not, it's not really not even ascendant anymore. No, you're you're actually in charge. You um, are basically doing this, and they're not taking care of other stuff. I mean, people I think will are willing to um, honestly tolerate or maybe even ignore a lot of a lot of other things as long as their economic needs. And I'm not trying to be a just some you know, overly materialistic kind of worldview, you know, approach to it. It's just more the idea that what ha- you know, when you have a situation like the, like the financial crisis and all the financial losses that people suffered, and the feeling that people felt like there wasn't enough done. Um, you know, I I don't go so far as say, well, shoot, if only Obama had a bigger stimulus package. Well, I think that would have helped. I mean, I think that might have actually been Ooh, part of it. This is but, there is, but but, but, but we'll, <laughs> we'll leave that aside. I mean, it may, that that may be simplistic, you know. But it's like, but at least if nothing else, the feeling that yeah, you know, that the that this crisis did not get the response that it should that a lot of people felt it should have. I think led to a, a, a real crisis of legitimacy. And I See, think that. I, I, I just have to, I have to push back. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the right in a second. I, have to, I actually have to push back on a lot of this. And this is why I like these more casual episodes because we can just without fearing our, your publisher will scream at us afterwards. Yeah. Number one, we have the test case of going big on spending bills. It's happening right now. And Joe Biden is getting no points for this. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny. We have this story about- No, oh, yeah, no, that's not, of, Val. That's not a Val. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, hey, I, I, I didn't no. interrupt. No, but no, wait. Yeah. Be quiet. The point here is, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, the notion that Obama would have done better if the stimulus package was a trillion dollars versus $700 billion, I don't see how that politically makes any sense, given that the amounts are so like incredibly huge here, given the fact that so much of what was in the stimulus package was broken up into different states. There's the debate over shovel-ready projects. I, I just I just don't buy the history here. And then B, there's a couple other things here. So, so B, the, the question of no one went to jail, this one's always been interesting to me because there's two levels this operates under. I would put forth the thesis that if Obama had jailed people who worked at a Wall Street bank, it would have had not even a marginal effect 
on the underlying dynamic, because at the end of the day, that's a post-op punitive effect. If, if we're thinking about politics and the financial crisis, what mattered is that a lot of people lost their homes. And there was this like really deep, like really, like you said, outside of Texas, like really deep, like really empirical thing that people felt. And they had very little trust that Obama or any actual people could actually solve that problem. I don't see why jailing a dude in Greenwich, which happens all the time. This happened during the Obama era, not just purely for the financial crisis, but over a bunch of people. I don't see how that at all affects this. Like we had Avinazos on the podcast. He was a great guest and he profiles a a wall street hedge fund guy who after 2007 like went to jail it wasn't literally because of the financial crisis but he was this corrupt person who did insider trading all these complicated things i don't see any evidence that that political story would have translated into the actual effects obama passed dodd frank he didn't get any points for doing dodd frank because i think in these cases the voters who were so punishing people for these facts they aren't looking at these exact like policy things and like taking them that literally. And then on top of that, I think this one thing that I'll, the last thing I really push back is I, I I think that something that Obama and Roy and John Jews forgot was the whole idea of the enemy gets a vote. So the reason why the Obama program failed, it wasn't because of gay marriage because like the Tea Party wave happened way before the gay marriage thing. This happened before things truly got condescending. I think, Togger, to your point about the Obama who was like, yeah, I didn't support gay marriage. I don't like it when it's, you know, press two for English. In 2010, that was still technically that Obama. I think the Democratic Party that you guys are referring to is one, and I agree with this critique, I think that's a Democratic Party that emerges in the void of Obama and as a response to Trump's election. I just do not get the sense that the the, the debate in 2010 was not about like cancel culture and PC stuff. That's a 2017 thing. I think at the end of the day, like Mitch McConnell realizing that like, wait a second, if I just say we are not going to support or pass anything Democrats actually do, we just live in a society that's so cynical and so aggressive. And this isn't saying Obama didn't make mistakes, but we will be rewarded for obstructionism and will not suffer any consequences. I think that goes both directions. So I, I think that's, I think you guys are just moving up what went wrong with Obama to 2010 when the factors you were describing are 2016 and 2018 ones. And then actually, I keep saying last thing, but the actual last thing is Obama would have beat Trump in 2016, which that's adds a good point, inter- which adds, which adds, in- which adds but- a wrinkle to the condescension and those other points. But yeah, but that's, that's the important point. See, so, sorry, Mark, I'm sorry. Oh, but, no, go ahead. Uh, um, the important point is that Obama still won re-election after 2010 because he still pandered and he still embraced the 2008 social norms. And it was after re-election in 2012 that created, again, combined with Ferguson, I think those two things can't be Give me be evidence separated. that the, the, the gay marriage, there was no evidence that Trump even I'm not supported talking about gay, gay marriage. I'm not then what are we, ta- not talking, then what are we talking about? I'm talking specifically mostly about Black Lives Matter, about a lot of the police rhetoric, but also just around the general activist type language. I, I'll tell you this. I was shocked. I remember this. Uh, when Hillary's announcement, what was it, 2014, 2015? I forget whenever. Yeah, when she 15. had a gay couple kissing in the ad. I was like, whoa. It's not once again. It's not about having uh, support or not. It was about putting that at the centerpiece in the actual announcement of the ad. And I remember thinking once again, Mark, I'm from College Station. I was like, I don't know about this. You know, I'm like, this is something. I was like, you know, this reads you know very certain way to a lot of people. Uh, you can call them homophobic if you want, but as Mark is saying, they exist. But on a much broader level, and this is actually gets to the spending. You actually kind of hit on this, Marshall. It's not about 700 trillion versus a trillion. 
as you're seeing with this bullshit Build Back Better thing, it can be six trillion. But if it's component parts of shit that nobody understands, then it doesn't matter. What Mark is saying and gets to the jail, and again, it's not even really about jail. It was a feeling of justice is that whenever you lose your house and another guy gets a bonus, you're like, hey, this is fucked up. Like, you just know that. Um, you don't care necessarily about Dodd-Frank. And by the way, Dodd-Frank was a piece of shit. So there's also, you know, a reason why that we didn't get any particular bona fides on that. But what you cared was is that you see this dude making a shit ton more money while you literally cannot come back from where you were and are working, you know, more hours for less money and less pay. That is the most basic thing. And it doesn't come down to a policy, you know, outcome necessarily. It's not about 700 versus a trillion. This is a huge mistake that progressives make too because it wasn't about shovel ready. It wasn't about cash for clunkers. It wasn't about any of that. It was about a basic level of fairness and justice that people felt, which doesn't translate necessarily to the legal code. It just translates to, this is a violation of how I assumed the social contract was throughout the entire course of my life. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's my general so what should, response. So what should, what should yeah. he have done then? Sorry, Mark, we'll get you in, but so like, yeah, no, I mean, what should this, he have done? This is then? the easy one. I would have scrapped all that shovel ready bullshit. And I would have put every single one of it on people's mortgages and made sure that people, nobody, not a single person got evicted. I would have made that pledge from the, from the bully pulpit. I say not one American is going to lose their house. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. So Mark, I'll throw it. Sorry. I wrote those to you, Mark, cause this is interesting. But that's what the Tea Party was. Like the literal opening speech of the Tea Party is that Obama is trying to give people support for mortgages. So it this is my, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, 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 that no. Was, but that was Rick, that Rick Santelli's liter. Yes, but that wasn't what the actual Tea Party became. Uh, the Tea Party became a reaction to Obamacare and the takeover of the healthcare system. It really is not analogous, really, to the housing market whatsoever. I mean, yes, Rick Santelli, the original speech. But the speech was not about the core of the movement. Think back to hands off my Medicare. At the very core of it, it was a distrust. As you said, the enemy gets a vote. Barack Obama, these people I don't trust whatsoever, are trying to screw with my health care. That's like a visceral reaction. And let's be honest, combined with a massive cultural backlash to the first black president. Okay. There's no dishonesty here yeah, that's, about what's happening. So go ahead, Mark. We've been, we've been yeah. debating. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, personally, yeah. I, I mean, I th- I'm glad you said because to me, it's like that yeah. cannot be. Un- I would never say that that was the majority of it, but I right. think that can never be ignored because that was part of it. definitely a, a, a big a big part of it, you know, either uh, up front or, 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 or subrosa. But I mean, I think the issue of I mean, first, uh, the the issue of sort of Dodd-Frank and things like that. Yeah, I mean, people don't go into the minutiae of legislation. Yeah, I mean, Dodd-Frank, I mean, things like that now. I think it's more just the feeling that, yeah, you know, that 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 a crisis took place that that there wasn't the justice just wasn't served, and yeah, you know, and I mean, and I think that you know that, that you know we talk about kind of different political concepts about you know and the, you have different phrases that are used like you know, you know the, the Tea Party talked all about freedom and things like that. I think a lot of it also comes back to you know to use the title from the Chris Arnade book, dignity. You know, just the, yes, people feel yeah. like people feel like they were humiliated. And humiliated people get angry, you know, with, with, and have every right to. And yeah, I mean, as far as the specific kind of policy, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, an economic policy guy who can go into this sort of minutiae, like, you know, the shovel ready versus, I would say just on a very visceral level, um, stopping mortgages from being foreclosed. I think when you look at, for example, what, what happened with the pandemic and just like, you know, 
Trump, you know, I, one thing I'll say, Trump, I'm convinced Trump would want re-election if he'd like ignored Mitch McConnell and sent more, more stimulus checks out, you know, in October, you know, I September, agree. October. I, I also agree with that. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's just, it's just like that, that people will need to feel like what affects them directly. And yeah, you might've had more kind of, you know, what I'll call traditional conservative, economic libertarian, whatever people complaining about it, but I kind of think that would be ignored. I, I think I think sooner or later they'd be like, "Yeah, it's Rick Santelli, yeah, good point," but yeah, but they and and that's why once I think once Obamacare kind of also took a little while for it to kick in. I'm not going to say that's an incredibly popular thing, but I think it's more popular now than it was some years ago because enough people have kind of said, "Well, it's not that great," but now look now I'm looking at it, you know, it did affect me. I don't know if I don't think anyone's voting on Obamacare in 2021, 22, but I think that you know this kind of becomes part of the background. But but I do think that that with respect to had there been more of a action to help people at a very basic level, and I think there is just a basic feeling, and and Trump was able to run on that. I mean, I mean, he was the one to use the line. Well, no one went to jail. And I mean, you could say, you know, well, Trump. I mean, some of your pals might have been ones that have gone to jail if they'd done that. You know, it's just like that's a, but that's not the point. You know, it's, yeah, it's, like, what you about know, the Trump deal in New York? Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know? So it's like, but it's the idea that people felt that that they had been that the justice had not been served in this moment of great injustice. And um, so you have that as an economic issue with what played out over the years and the, the breakup part of the consensus. I think the issue of, you know, what's happened, you know, um, you know, with the during the particularly during the during the past during the the, the riots were taking place, you know, you had Ferguson and afterwards, we need, well, you had a lot of people, myself included, like talking about, you know, the police are being too much militarization of the police. We need to kind of get get away from that. But then, you know, when he went from there to the defund the police. Which and, and and here's the thing. To be fair, Democrats, most Democrats have not run on defund the police. Joe Biden made it real clear that he was not a defund the police guy. That's why he's president right now. That's why he's president. Nor the, right. you know, the enemy gets a vote, and most importantly, normies get a vote too. Mark, you just gave us Mark. You, I'm actually yeah. not kidding. You just gave us the title of the episode. That's actually normies get a vote too. That's very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad, but but yeah. So that's the thing. It's like, but the thing is, he his movement has been, or his po- political party has been has been tarred with it, and whether it's fair or not. You know, is really beside the point. It, it just is, and a lot of people. And you know, again, kind of looking back to say the you know the, on the big macro level, but then the micro level, where you know Latino voters in South Texas. You know, um, if you go to Latino, you know, a lot. You know, if you look at who people who who is the border patrol in South Texas, it's mostly Mexican Americans. Yeah. Yeah, you literally have to be dual lingo in order, yeah. or dual language in order to be border patrol, which a lot of these idiots don't actually see. You know, yeah, and guess it, who is down in Laredo? You know? Yeah, and I mean, and there's like, the, and this this is a good job. That's like got it's a unionized job, incidentally. <laughs> it's, like, it's a good it's a good job, but that that basically, and you know, and they feel, and they'll say, hey, look, I mean, we see also there just they say, look, there is some there is some very serious, dangerous, bad stuff going on right across the border. That's scary. And um, and that's not. And yeah, it can be overplayed and xenophobes can sort of try to like talk about the horrors of, you know, what, what's going on in Mexico and, you know, in a really gross way. But, um, you know, just in terms of how people you know live their lives, people from the Rio Grande Valley don't go to, Ma- to Mexico as much as they used to. Um, the, you know, people who used to happily go to restaurants in, in, in my town, Brownsville, Texas. I mean, one weird ancillary benefit is the restaurant scene in Brownsville, Texas has gotten a lot better in the, the past 10 years. Why? Because people aren't going to Matamoros right across the border 
for a good meal at a, you know, at, at, you know, at a lesser price. So you gotta, you know, you gotta, gotta match it. So, you know, you have this thing where people see the disorder or the perception of the disorder and we can debate where it is or not, but I actually want to focus a bit on that because one thing that I've had in long-term interest has been the issue of violent crime. Hmm. And um, I actually, my, my, all those years ago when I was a senior in college, my senior thesis involved violent crime. And that was during the 90s crime, crime wave, the peak. And, um, you know, when I, when I was in college during the time I was doing my thesis, you know, I got my park car broken into twice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, that affects people. And, and to me, the, un, the, the underreported story the past 20 years had been the decline in the crime rate, massive decline nationally took the, took place you know from the early 90s to to the past couple of years and the problem is crime has been increasing in most places in the past couple of years and yeah you can tell people it's still you know, yes statistically it is so much lower than it was even now than it was you know a decade ago it's like you thought you were safer it's like if you thought you were safer in, in 1992 than now you are wrong if you're in most if in any yeah, most american big cities right but the thing is, when you couple the underreporting or the underattention in the decline to where people still have in the back of their mind this idea that like you know the, the things just never got better, and then it seems like they're getting worse, then you you have and, and and you have objectively bad things that are happening. You know that basically that that people you know you you can't ask people to ignore what they see in front of them. And to and and again, the the, the what we're talking the visceral aspect, feeling like un, injustice happening, you know, the feeling that I can't walk around safely is a real big thing. And they mm-hmm. and they see the, a horrible crime committed, and they feel like that could have been me or my kid. I mean, that's 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 visceral politics that I that I think can you know that the that. Anyone who's in power is, is going to be is going to face a backlash if that's happening. And right now, the Democrats in power. But also, if the perception is not only is it because you're in power, but because maybe some of your political allies are, if not making, or if not making things worse, at least they don't seem to be doing something that's making it better. Yeah, you know, you know, the, then then that's you know the, so much of the conservative you know um, you know kind of you know kind of strength during the '70s and, and '80s was response to crime. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, call it whatever it was, say that there may have been aspects of it. That, yes, maybe aspects of it that involved, you know, racial pr- racism, maybe aspects involved, you know, kind of lack of information on certain things or sort of a dirty, hairy mentality. Fine. But the fact is, when the crime rate was going up and the feeling that the cities were going becoming un- unlivable and, you know, that fed, uh, you know, and that's something, you know, that, you know, frankly, you know, you saw, you know, that and both parties address it, you know, the, the crime bill that, you know, that everyone wants to disown, you know, of the early nineties was incredibly popular. And, um, and people want to act like this was something that was sort of like, Oh, this, this great historical mistake. And maybe it was on some things. I mean, in terms of how mass incarceration went or that sort of thing, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into that dispute, but I can just say it was a response to a very real perception of of a level of disorder and, and, and violence that, that was no longer acceptable. And if we, and if we start falling back to that now, you're going to see the politics re, um, reflected. And Sagar is going to pivot us to the right conservative part of the conversation in a second. But I just want to say a quick thing based on what you just said, which ties together the story of the Obama presidency Sagar was telling, which is that a good way of understanding what happened to the Democratic Party's 
language on crime and policing was that the timeline you just gave so eloquently, Mark, hit at exactly the wrong point. So 2014, Ferguson, we are still, we're still in this period where the crime, we're we're still, we're in this period where basically no one remembers how bad the 1980s and early 90s were. We haven't quite had a resurge in crime. So it's, it's a peak moment for, okay, we overreached in the 80s and 90s. We need to revisit these things. A lot of people left, right, and center really did react really viscerally to like, holy shit. It's like you said, Mark, wait, why are people driving Humvees around the streets of like a Missouri city? That doesn't make any sense. So people react. You saw us on the left, you saw us on the right, you on the center. But then what then happens is when you add that mix to Trump, you see a scenario where everyone, and this is the topic I'm fascinated by, which is how do elites and how do the establishment respond to these minority, I don't mean racially, but these, these small movements, you see the Democratic establishment, except for Joe Biden, who is just so old that he frankly doesn't care. I think this is actually a sign of him being a good politician. If you're a 50-something Democrat and you see defund the police, you're like, oh shit, like, what, what, what do I do? Like, we, 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 we know that we can't talk how we did in the 80s and 90s. I saw Ferguson happen. I got elected in 2016. They don't know how to handle it. So it's just such a useful way of understanding that Obama-era pivot. But sorry, yeah, please take us to the right. Oh, this is this is difficult. It's funny because this is why we brought you on. It's been 54 minutes and it took us this long to get here. Uh, Mark, but since you actually are in the you know center left, right. we should talk well, about your important. actual background. Look, this is how you get here, right? The, what we're about, what we just described, is the journey to now. We have Donald Trump. It wins in 2016. Um, this show, myself, Marshall, many people said, whoa, this is a big realignment, a validation specifically of economic populism, that this was as much an economic phenomenon as was cultural. At least that's what I thought. Um, then 2020 happens. So we have four years where Trump basically governs like a cartoonish version of whatever Mitt Romney would have done back in 2012, um, passes the tax bill, you know, probably the most business-friendly administration there was. Gary Cohn literally worked there. Steve Mnuchin was the Treasury Secretary. All of that. And he wins more votes. He wins 10 million more votes. And when I saw that, I was like, holy shit. I was like, none of this was economic whatsoever. None of it. Absolutely none of it. Um, and, you know, people who listen to the show got got upset about that. Whenever I said that, people are still calling me to grips with it because they want that to be true. I go, listen, right. I want it to be true too, but it's not, okay? Uh, and the more that I saw it, I said, this is an entirely cultural phenomenon. And I couldn't put words to it, Mark, until I read Rise of the Barstool Conservatives by Matthew Walther, February 2021. I still remember uh, whenever it came out because it had such a profound impact on me. And I said, holy shit, this is it. And what he described specifically um, just giving people a background if they haven't heard before, is the phenomenon through which the American culture war changed forever under Donald Trump, that millions of people can, would, and did come out to vote specifically on issues of political correctness and a backlash against what they saw as a rise in political correctness, against ideas that we don't say Merry Christmas enough again, against um, sexual mores and the way that we discuss and even think about sexuality, gender, all of that, and about really just being a freaking normal-ass person, whether you're normal or not. And this comes to uh, a thesis that I had, which is what a lot of people who I found 
fellow travelers in the what you can call the national conservative right or the Catholic right or mm-hmm. many others who were fellow travelers in the questioning of economic orthodoxy, they actually hold social positions which are not popular with the American people whatsoever. They actually and seemingly seem antithetical to this yeah. barstool view, which has caused a huge rift, uh, Mark, between myself and uh, a lot of these more online people, because the way that I see the Trump phenomenon is not in any way a validation of social conservatism, despite whatever the hell might happen with Roe versus Wade. It's, oh, uh, actually the emerging Republican minor- majority of you know people who are Latinos in South Texas, of white working class American voters, one third of whom are actually pro-choice, who ended up voting for Donald Trump, are people who just really hate liberals yeah. and uh, really hate elite liberal culture. And that's enough. That actually is enough yeah. for them. They're, they're literally getting what they want. You can call it barstool conservatism because Dave Portnoy and Barstool have built a $100 million, uh, yeah. more than that actually at this point, $200 million brand just being like, no, screw you. Yeah. We are, you know, j- we're going to talk and act just like the frat boys of 2011, the, whenever I came, maybe even earlier on, I mean, 2002, like whenever I came up. And there's nothing fucking wrong with that. They're willing to say that. And it's what's gotten them popular. And it very much seems like an electoral strategy for the future. So I know I just threw a lot at you. What brought you to the same conclusion? How did you view these emerging, uh, you know, fractions on the right? And uh, what do you think about all this? Can I add, can I add Mark, I just add one thing just to to Sagers? Because I I want you just to respond to our broad frame, because this is the actual episode frame. The thing, the reason why Sagar referenced a lot of online NatCon new right conservatives disliking this thesis is because everyone in the back of their mind knows that this demographic who Sagar is describing, they hate the online right, or they would hate (laughs) the online right (laughs) just as much, if not more. All of these like hyper Catholic Roe v. Wade will be overturned forever. Dave Portnoy wouldn't like you either. No. Yeah. So, like, no. so that, this, this is yeah. the only the re, the key part of this story is the reason why the barstool right. They're not even so. Sagar didn't say barstool Republicans because these aren't oh. Republicans. They're not partisan. They just don't like these establishments. And if the establishment was right, they hate it just as much. But that just quick frame and please respond. Yeah, to I mean, I think uh, there's a lot that goes into this. I mean, I think that you know, barstool conservatism is a great term for it. You, know, you could also call it. Oh, it's a much less catchy term folk libertarianism you know it's not some it's not and it's not people reading robert nozick it's not people reading Rand. it's people just kind of saying you know it's just like you're not the boss of me man yeah <laughs> it's just yeah. like that don't tell me what to do don't tell me what to do right. it's like yeah. you're not the boss of me that is as that is as american american you know, <laughs> you know, an ideology yeah. just sort of like you're not the boss of me it's like it's it's the front and it can go into in, if you want to intellectualize it's the frontier mythos whatever but it's just this idea that i should be able to run my own business as i want and as long as i'm not doing something egregiously terrible i mean because that's the thing i'm sure if you ask the average bar stool conservative you know should a company be able to dump toxic waste in the river well no <laughs> you know things well, like well, that Mark, quick, but, we're, we're, we're low on time here so i have to interrupt yeah, yeah, yeah. to get to, to get what's most valuable out of you yeah. what is the difference between folk liberal libertarianism and dc libertarianism because something that we we always start you know this we always get this in the q a for both of our shows whenever we dump on libertarianism people who often are folk libertarians say what's your beef i don't get it so what's the difference you're hinting at 
I think that with with DC or more kind of you know without you know that that sort of libertarianism, it really is just more as kind of purely you know kind of a consistency for its own sake, as far as you know a minimalist state. Um, if you want to be really use the term minarchism, you know things like that, just sort of you mm-hmm. know this night watchman state. That a lot of people who are conservative libertarians say, I'm not necessarily wanting that. I just want to be left alone more. Um, they might take a position that you know that is a little nuanced, like saying, yeah, I believe that we should have lower taxes and things like that, but you know we shouldn't have free trade with countries that might actually mean that's lead to lower jobs here because you know because my my and and it actually is not an intellectually we can such more like hey look i mean there are real fundamental problems with trade with countries that have restrictive policies of themselves how is that a level playing field are you you know know, if you're going to create this idea of a limited you know limitations like how big does that bubble go out you know should just stop at your borders you know there's an example you know you know that's i mean there's some issues with that i think that also a lot of folk libertarians are socially conservative in a way that you know that from my experience you know from what people i've known in in these various kind of universes both in texas and in elsewhere you know it's like, it tends to be more of a socially liberal group or, or at least you know um and while, libertine. You know, liberty libertine. liberty yeah liberty yeah. yeah it's like basically just like they just don't care about such issues as being something they want to fight about um it's something that they might you know if they want to go into real you know, looking at the issues of the day, they might say, well, look, I think Roe v. Wade was bad law, but I would vote for abortion rights in my home state, you know, and, uh, you know, something like that. So, you know, so I think that's a thing, but, but going to like the, 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 the strength of the barstool thing versus say a lot of the things. And to be fair, I mean, actually when I was when I kind of, you know, sorry, I mean, the, 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 the tweets sort of kind of started, it was where I kind of, you know, it's talking about, you know, national conservatism and things like that mm-hmm. as being kind of, you know, nerdy or whatever. It's like, to be fair, actually, I think there's more overlap between say the national conservatives but then, then say some of them are, you know, I'm going to use that term again, and we'll use again, integralists, you know, things like that, you know, you know, because because if there are nothing else, national conservatives, I think, have a overlap with what kind of what I would call sort of, you know, raw rock patriotism. Like, yeah, we yeah. believe in this kind, of, you know, they're more likely to kind of say, and the reason we're doing these things, the reason we want these things that are maybe conservatively, not what conservatives would normally do, like say, for example, wanting to have more social welfare spending in certain contexts or things like that, you know, is because we think it's kind of to to boost the family and the country that we all, that we all care about, you know? Um, so I think that's th- there, but, I, but yeah, I think that the, the barstool conservatives are, I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not an accident. The college football games is where you started having, you know, a lot of the chance about Br- Biden coming. Yeah. In. Let's go Brandon. Right. Exactly. That's where it started. Literally. Exactly. Yeah. That's it's yeah. like, it's like, that's the crowd that's into it. And like, you know, and, you know, and so it's like, yeah, it's, it's men and women who like, college football and who like you know to kind of you know go to barbecues and do things like that and like you know and this and 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 an approach that basically alienates that culturally that basically seems like you're being kind of weird is this not going to work you know it's not it's not it's not going to feed into that and i mean and it's like and again it's like that i think that's where we're going to have you know you, you will stay on the fringe if you basically start if you start telling people look there's too much you know, religious people are being pushed around. Let people just do what they want in their own churches. Okay. I think that's something the barstool conservatives would really like, you know, if they would say, you know, um, I, you let, know me, the, let me, let me emphasize yeah. that point because this yeah. is the key. I always try to tell the so cons get very upset whenever we talk about this and I'm just like, yeah, well, sorry, you know, it's just not that popular. Uh, the thing is, is that within this coalition, they're just not going to have the same amount of veto power that they have currently under a barstool conservative vision. People will be like, look, Frankly, I think you're a weirdo for homeschooling your kids, but go for it. It's yeah. it's exactly one of those things where it's like I wouldn't want to hang out with you. Um, you know, like fine, I guess, but we're not going to like 
come and enforce a racial equity audit or whatever That's on right. your homeschool thing. If you want to do it, fine. It's yeah. a free country. They'll, they'll, That's, they'll, yeah, go ahead. They'll say, they'll say, you know, I think you're a jerk for not baking a cake for the for the for the gay for the gay couple that wants to come to your place. But if you want to do it, but if you're gonna be like that, yeah, like whatever. Whatever. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, and I th- and I think that that's the thing. It's like and and you call it folk libertarianism because it is sort of this idea of like leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Let's have the government leave both of us alone. You know, and um, you know, and so I think that there so if you have that that and and coupled with a sort of you know kind of you know, sensibility that's a bit irreverent, you know, it's but even then it's like it's it's not even like it's something you know, something unusual or unseen. It's just kind of the good, good old-fashioned American wisecracker. I mean, this yeah. is something. This is something that, that you see. It's a type of comedy that go that go that goes back decades. It's just the guy who's just sort of like, yeah, okay, you know, you know, this guy. <laughs> you know, it's like that's that. It's it's just a a very, and it's appealing because it's not dour. It's um, it's often ties into people who are also like very willing to kind of do the, you know, go to their jobs and do well and not, you know, they're not here to kind of, you know, launch a critique of the system. They want to work within it and build a better one and build something good for their lives and their families. And, um, you know, and, and, and I think that that's the thing. It's like the, 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 abil- and does it differ that much in public policy from other stuff that's happened in the past in some ways it does in some ways it doesn't i think there is a little bit more of a of a, of a libertine libertarianism that's there it, at least more of a you know of a feeling that we're not get, you know we're, that we are not going to p- prioritize some of the social issues that other people would like to see prioritized but that doesn't mean us but it also means we're going to maybe give some more space for those who feel that way um and i think that you know you have this sort of like killjoy f- feeling that a lot, a lot of what's happening right now in the left is a very killjoy attitude very humorless, very, and just people just don't like that. People just don't want to be around that. And that's why I'd say that, you know, that, that, that a movement that can, that is going to be seen as pushing back on that. Cause a lot, I mean, and that's, and, it, and it, I think it's an accident too, that, you know, it's happening at a moment with everything that's been happening with COVID and things like that, where people just feel like they're being told no all the time. And they're, and, and maybe for very good reasons, they're being told, no, you, you, you know, you have to like, you can't come, you know, and, you know, we can debate, and, you know, when, you know, whether or not there should be, you know, or the California and, and New York's going too far with masking now, you know, going back to it, you know, but, you know, but if nothing else, you know, it was something that people maybe were fine with a year, year and a half ago, less so now. And it's this feeling that like, that there's a feeling that there's people out there in charge who are just simply not giving up, not, not giving that space, not yeah. saying, okay, you can, you, you can have this place for you. We're not going to sit there and try to enforce every single rule that we think we want upon you. And, um, and, and that's the thing, if, if it's, if a conservative is seen as just replacing one set of rules, the other, that's all these guys, when I see them, it's just that they, they've, they've gotten their heads like, well, the liberals are, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're just creating their own sort of vision society and imposing on people. Well, we should impose it on people. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of, you know, that can be a, a, a sort of attempting in a certain, in a certain way. And I guess if you have certain kind of fantasies of power kind of makes you feel good about yourself, but it's like, but a lot of people just don't want to live like that. I mean, there's like, no, there, and it's like, I'm not voting for you to basically, you know, have us, you know, create, you know, little by little us moving towards a confessional state. I don't want that. I just want to be able to go to my church and you go to your church. And and if you don't want to go to church, that's fine too. Just, well, who cares? And and so here's what I want to know um, as we're nearing the end here. What does this mean for Democrats? Because 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 if you're a Democrat, you're in this semi weird state yeah. where 
the elephant in the room in this conversation is obviously Roe v. Wade. And we could talk yeah. about Dave Portnoy and people would talk about how Joe Rogan's increasingly right-leaning, but let's not pretend for one second these guys aren't pro-choice. Um, and I, and I think all, that- They both and, said it, actually. Yeah, so everyone, like, like, like <laughs> all of the all of these people, Russell Brand, yeah. like, there's, there's yeah. always, like, online people who've been winking at yeah. being more right-leaning. That will all change in a specific, in a, in a partisan context. I'm not saying they won't still just like cancel culture, but it will introduce a different type of like right coming, like top down thing. How, so if you're a Democrat, are you basically gambling that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, because that's honestly not a thing you could do anything, do anything about, are you gambling that there will be Republican overreach, which is a bad, that's not good politics. If you're not gambling on that, what are you supposed to do? Like what, what 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 is your advice for Democrats who see this potent mix? Uh and honestly, if they're honest in private, we'll say, yeah, this is a really, really threatening style of politics, especially given what happened in Virginia. I, I think that they're gonna have to first of all, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, then you you, you talked about a moment, you know, how the show raises called the realignment thing. There's boy, there will be a realignment then. I think that I think that I that's gonna so too. that, that blows that blows up fundamental assumptions we've had for 50 years of politics in terms of you know a certain, a certain amount of free votes on maybe Republican-leaning people who are pro-choice, and frankly, pro-life people who might have who might have voted Democratic. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I could, yeah, this is a little bit of a side, but you know, in a weird, I could see Roe v. Wade lead to a more a much more horrible polarization. I could also see it lead to a resurgence of pro-choice Republicans and pro-life Democrats in various parts of the country where it becomes it becomes a state issue, then you know. You know the, the the door is open to all sorts of different political compromises and political, um, you know, kind of machinations that are come from that. Once once you basically put it in the political process. Wait, do you uh, still think that? Do you still think there are state issues? Because this and this is where this gets difficult. Sagar and I know plenty of Republicans who have said in private, of course, we would support Congress passing a national abortion law. Oh, I know. I I know I, there, right. there, there oh, actually well, is no. There actually is no evidence. They don't say that, it in private. They, they think it. Oh, yeah, yeah, like no, there, yeah, there is no. That's oh, all. I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm, so, it's, so it's a big assumption uh, for you to say a, this would be a state issue. It's no, that you're right. You're absolutely right. And I've seen definitely once people, the people online, you know, includes the type that I've that we've been talking about, saying, "Oh no, next step now is the, is the law." It's like, yeah, but if you push that, then you're going to have the national, the national becomes a national issue in a different way, and and also, I mean, to the extent you're going to, if if you if it is kept more at the state level, you're you're just going to have you know various regional coalitions and things like that come together in a, in a different way. Either way, I would say the the overturning it, Roe v. Wade would just would be is going to be a, if if that happens, and I think there's a very high chance it will. will. Yeah. It is going to be a thunderbolt that no that that's going to go in directions that I don't think anyone's really quite able to predict you know, predict well. Now going back to your question about the, how's the Democrats respond to this, um, I am a, yeah I think that that the that if they're going to have to allow there to be a real dissent on this and and have Democrats who are going to be very critical of this. I mean, if, it's not saying that one's going to dominate the other per se, but if you're going to have a situation where, um, where if you, I hate the term woke culture, because this is such a badly way to describe, but if you have to where that becomes something that's, uh, that, that becomes dominant in a Wait, way that you can't dissent. Why is that bad? It just, to me, it's a, it, to me, it just seems like a, a some, I don't know. It just seems like it's a way that, that, I maybe it's a, maybe idiosyncratic. To me, it's just it's it's a phrase. It doesn't necessarily tell me what you're what you're you know what 
what you're fighting against or fighting for, you know. But, yeah, but, but at this point, it's in the lexicon. It, it's it's in the lexicon. Yeah. So that's that's why I used it. So that's why you know. Right. But, right. Uh, but, yeah. but 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 yeah. But but let me give you an example of someone who fought, who's like kind of put did a pushback. That I think it's like guys, you need to like let your local Democrats, particularly local uh, Democrats of particular ethnicities. I'm forgetting his name right now, but a congressman out of I believe Arizona, Ruben Gallego. Yes, I was I was like I was like he's gonna say it. Yes, yeah. he's gonna run and challenge Kirsten Cinema actually. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I mean, and him and him just saying, please don't use the term Latinx anymore, you know, and and it's because and because most Hispanics don't like that term or if they don't like it, they don't use, maybe they don't like it. They just don't use it. And it's just seen by a lot of people as being just something that's being pushed on them. And I think that that's the thing. It's just like to the extent you have people like like him who are going to stand up and say no. And that doesn't, you know, that might, and, 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 and again, it may have to be in a sort of a little bit live and let live thing saying that may work for you in your, um, in, 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 in your, wherever you are, if you're basically your student, running across. your student government race yes. in a blue state, that may it, be the way to do it. Exactly. But, but I think that you're going to have to let local Democrats be Democrats and, you know, and, and even though you're right that these issues, the push and pull of national politics is makes let me, it hard yeah, let to Let me local. pause you there, Mark, because this is the part of the question. Do, do they have any control? Because here's the thing. I don't actually think any national Democrats outside of like Elizabeth Warren ever use Latinx. But you know what the problem is? Latinx is used by academia, yeah. the highest echelons of cultural power, Hollywood, Amazon, Walmart. That's not necessarily a Democratic constituency. Like you can't vote for that. That's not right. Ruben Gallego can't small call D. small the D CEO. Democratic. Yeah, right. Yeah. Small D. Yeah. Ruben Gallego can't call Jeff Bezos and be like, stop using Latinx in Amazon hiring materials. But part of the reaction to Trump or for Trump is being like, man, I just can't escape this shit wherever I go. Yeah, Which, by the way, I totally get. So go ahead. No, that's that's that. You're right. That's a very it, they're, they're not going to respond in the way that you can like constituent services with, with a politician. Um, the only thing I can, can think about that is if you have enough opinion leaders who basically are willing to say that. And are willing okay. to be able to kind of challenge it. That sooner or later you do have you go back to the issue of legitimacy. It's just sort of like you know, it's and and it cuts both ways. I mean, if I mean, it's something that, you know, like with we're talking about like Latinos become you know if they become a bigger Republican constituency, it's hard for you to say you're acting on behalf of or in favor of or you're criticizing someone for being anti a particular group when large parts of that group are vocally disagreeing with you, you know, and I mean, you can say, well, they're being false consciousness or whatever, which is a term I really, really hate, but it's like, it's just like, you know, if 40% of Latinos are saying, you know, are voting Republican, it's hard to say that it's going to make it harder for people to say that the Republican Party is inherently anti-Latino. If, if large amounts of, of, of people who are Democratic progressive otherwise are saying no enough this is just not working I, it's hard for me to see that as being ignored especially when a lot of them say like in the in the business community are doing it just because someone told them that was the right thing to do to seem like you're being enlightened right. i mean right. a lot a lot a lot of this does come down to people just kind of wanting to seem like they're doing feel like they're doing the right thing you know if i say this uh, you know i i don't understand this you know and you know, I actually had this personal situation where like, I kind of like, you know, where you know, I'm a Spanish surname, you know, Latino and someone's turned like, and, and, and they didn't get, they didn't know about the, 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 the I said, you know, and a lot of Latinos don't really don't like that term, you know, and it's like, and there's this pupil and they didn't know, you know, and it was like, and they were just trying to be like, they thought they were being 
you know, doing the right thing and doing the most current terminology. And, and that's the thing. I think that, you know, and, and, and it's nice to get a debate on the propriety of that term. I mean, frankly, if, if the majority of Latinos then say that like the term, then they have the place at the table. No, they but get this it. is, you're but, getting but, to why this debate actually matters though, because this debate matters because it's a statement about what politics is in this. And this is in Ruben Gallego. We're, we're citing him because he's had some actually really good tweet threads where he said, the issue is not literally that some people say Latin X that is not literally the problem. That isn't literally why Democrats. But there, there, I, I would, I would bet there are not more than five kind of weird Latino voters in Texas who said, "You know what, Latinx, I'm voting yeah, for yeah, Trump." Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, no. As Gallego put it, I need to cite him because these are his words. It's symbolic of how yeah. divorced you are from the community that yes. you think this is the way this happens. To your point, if you go around saying Latinx, well, you have not spoken to a non, frankly, like college educated successful not representative hispanic person you think that is normal to say the word latinx then they have to build a build on your point um saga real quick because we, we actually do have to uh, cut here in a second um there is kind of a small d response and that small d response is the 2020 and honestly the 2021 elections for example, Ruben Gallego didn't put out his initial tweet thread on Latinx until after the polling on Trump doing better with Republicans came out. I have it on good authority that he'd been concerned about this for a long time, but because he's actually a talented politician, you know when you could not do a tweet storm about Latinx? Yeah, June Summer yeah. June, <laughs> June right. 2020. That is so the and guess what? I think if I think if Biden had completely destroyed Trump then I don't think he would have put out the threat of the same degree. And yeah, also right. the second, and this also happened, and there was also another aggressive push in places like the Atlantic, the New Yorker to have a more nuanced conversation around these lines after Virginia and then the near loss yeah. in New Jersey. So it's not, so it's true that we can't literally tell Amazon or Democrats can't tell Amazon what to think. But I think if there's one thing, the entire group is the people here describing fear soccer, it's Trump coming back in 2024. So I strongly suspect if Trump runs again, you will see an incredibly large amount of op-eds saying every single upper middle class liberal ever do not say Latinx. I think I, I legitimately think that is going to happen. Like they're, they're, this is a semi-conspiracy, but I think it's largely true. There will be a decentralized consensus that we're going to basically throw most of the PC stuff off if Trump is looking like he's going to win again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, people yeah, the the everyone, yeah, people notice is lots results outside outside the political world, and they see and they do see what you know, what, and and especially, I mean, if you look at the business people. I mean, they 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 can also look at this as a marketing trend too. You know, it's sort of like, hey, this is alienating you know people. You know, uh, you know, if our company is being seen a particular way. But yeah, I would agree with you that like the you know, there's nothing quite like defeat to kind of um you know kind of get people's attention and if they or the, or the threat of it. And and I and yeah, if, if you see again the co the different coalitions that can come in, and yeah, I mean as far as also you know who who's going to be voting for the Democrats right now is different than than twenty years before and twenty years from now, and if they're seeing a trend going against them, that is that is that that they can sort of tie to to a large thing. And you're right, it's symbolic. That that one issue is a symbolic one. Yeah, I don't think there's a single <laughs> like I, said, I, I was going to say no. Was <laughs> very tiny. But there but it does tie into, you know, I can guarantee you those voters who were in Star County and Zapata County and Rio Grande Valley that was part of the mix. They were like, you know, on top, you know, that's like well on top of everything else, it's actually more substantive. God, I mean, it's just like they just don't get it. 
you know, yeah. the they being the Democrats. And that's the thing. It's just like if if there's a if there is parties go out of power and people feel like they just don't get it and they Absolutely. don't get their problems. And, you know, and if the and if the Democrats are seeing, you know, and that's true no matter who's in power. So so the thing is, you know, when when the if the economy is booming, people feel like people are that they're getting it. If, if people feel like there's personal prosperity, but they're but if they're not feeling that, and they're feeling the 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 thing the the perception that of just not caring, and part of that, and there's symbolic things you can do to show you don't care, like using terminology that people don't really like, using um, a a pushing issues that that are not in, that, that basically people feel like that's not really helping me and doesn't help most people. And they may be important. And that's the, I, I, I never want to kind of minimize sort of the idea that, Hey, look, every issue is, you know, the, every issue is important to somebody. Every, you know, it's like, you know, it's like say like in, when you're in practicing law, it's like, you know, that, every, that, that person's case is the most important case, the most important contract to them. It's may not be the only thing you're working on, but it's the most important thing to somebody <laughs> and um, to, your, to some clients, the most important thing. Go. So, I mean, so I, so I don't want to minimize that or feel like people are being you know blown off or anything like that. But, but when you look at the raw numbers, it's like, well, you know, if, if this is something that, that on the writ large scale th- that people feel like they're being, they're not getting a real benefit from, then they're going to turn and, you know, and, and it gets, and, you know, this goes back to the most visceral things, you know, that basically people see in their own lives, which is basically their, their, their economic standpoint, the safety they feel in their, their, in their neighborhoods, um, the quality of the schools that their kids are going to, the safety of the, the school, you know, um, and it may be things that are very isolated that, again, become a symbol. I mean, I've, I've seen on social media discussions of, you know, kids in New York having to kind of eat outside in the cold, because of COVID restrictions. I mean, I don't know how prevalent that is. I have absolutely no idea how that is, but mm-hmm. boy, that thing went like wildfire. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. In part because, because people can see it. They can imagine, yes. oh yeah, I know exactly They're, who they'll be like, They'd do it if they could. Exactly. You know? Yeah. The, the, and then, you know, they, they, they're thinking of a principal at their school or an administrator. The kid's like, oh man, if they could make them sit outside to do that, they would do it. And they're thinking, and some people like say back here in Texas think, oh, thank God, they're not, they're, they don't have the power to do that here. And, you know, and by the way, who didn't, who made sure they didn't have the power? Oh yeah, the Republicans. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. you know um, don't minimize that. And that's, that's, Ex- that's, that's my warning to the Democrats, uh, um, you know, my fellow Democrats, you know, um, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's, I, I took, there was an online poll that was going around on Twitter recently and I took it and it actually put me as ambivalent rights. So maybe it's, <laughs> I'm not the best. Yeah, but in pick. Texas, that yeah. still makes you a modern Democrat. That's so. Exactly. That's exactly right. There so it's go. just like, the, the, you know, you, the, the extent to which people just are responding in a real visceral manner, particularly you know the the also we talked so much about minorities and being key to the, the the Obama coalition. It was also young people, yeah. And if young people are feeling like and I and I just have a gut feeling when I see just again you know who's at the football games. These are young people who are the students who basically are now feeling like they've had years of their lives diminished. And maybe they say you know and then Lama say you know it was okay because I had a grandma that needed to be protected or things like that. But there's going to be that moment where it's going to feel like I, I had a, a good chunk of my teenage years taken away from me, and I'm never going to forget that. That's well and, said. Mark, yeah. unfortunately, we, we got to cut it here, uh, man. We went longer than we normally do just because I love talking to you so much. We're going to have to have you back. There's I'd no love question. to be back on. This is great. Uh, I had a really great absolutely. time. Um, and I'll let you know the next time I'm in Houston. Marshall also. 
Uh, yeah, quick, uh, to, 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 explain, to explain the weird reference, um, I was, I'm, a, I'm adopted, live in Oregon, but I was born in Houston, was there for two days before my parents yeah. took me back. So it's in well, the blood. I'm, it, I'm, I'm, I feel Houston. I feel the, Texas. The first <laughs> soil your feet touched was the soil <laughs> of Texas. <laughs> so that makes there me, so that's, that, 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 that's for real. <laughs> uh, thanks, Mark. I can't tell you how much I learned and just enjoy talking to you. So thank I, you. I enjoyed yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.